The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So we are a few days from the 4th of July, and uh, I don't know what your family does for the 4th of July. Uh, my, my family has a number of various traditions. I I think back to uh, one of the very first memories I have of the 4th of July was the first time I ever lit a firework. And I remember this moment because we were at a, like a family friend of ours house and uh, they had a son who was a couple year, a year older than I was and he was a lot more cool with the fireworks than I was. I was very scared of them. Um, but I remember seeing him light these bottle rockets and thinking, I want to do that. And so I go, and my heart's racing, and I light the bottle rocket, and as soon as I see the fuse catch fire, I sprint as fast as I can back to the house, to the point that I miss the firework going off entirely, so I didn't get to actually enjoy it. But I have that memory. I I also remember um, a few years later, I was in middle school, I remember going to this baseball tournament in North Carolina, and I was with some friends, and I had just gone up there, and we were kind of in a place in North Carolina that was close to the South Carolina border. And we find out that the rules or the laws in South Carolina are much more relaxed when it comes to fireworks than North Carolina, right? To no one's shock, okay? So South Carolina is the place to go if you want some cool fireworks. So a bunch of us and our dads go down to uh, South Carolina. We cross the border. And as soon as you cross this border, there's like places everywhere. It's like fireworks, you know? And uh, if there's something that I realized at an early age, like if you want to define how Americans celebrate Fourth uh, of July, uh, it's like barbecue and blowing stuff up. Like that kind of encapsulates freedom, right? Yeah, thank you, right? And so we, we go to this field and we just start lighting these fireworks, and it was a, we just had a great time, phenomenal time together on that Fourth of July. And uh, whatever your family does to to celebrate the Fourth, or maybe you're someone who comes from a different nation and you're a part of our faith family, or even people watching online in different nations and you don't kind of have a familiarity with what Americans do or it's strange to you, Uh, it is kind of an interesting day that we commemorate our independence. Uh, But this idea that's kind of at the heart behind the 4th of July, Independence Day, is this idea of freedom. It's a word that we sing about in songs and people put on tacky t-shirts, right? This This is freedom, right? We celebrate our freedom. And it kind of lined up in a really neat way that we happen to be studying a book in the Bible Galatians, that one of its central themes is this idea of freedom. In fact, on five different occasions, the author uses the word freedom or free uh, right here in Galatians. And what's uh, hopefully going to be clear and evident in a few moments is that at the heart of the Christian faith is this idea of freedom, and it's a, a, a something that provides for us really attention. And if you've encountered the message of Jesus before, chances are you've wondered this question before. The Christian freedom that Jesus offers us and what's meant in Galatians when he talks about freedom, it leads us to ask a question that we're gonna say something like this. Wait a minute. If what Jesus is saying is true, if the gospel is true, then doesn't that mean this? And the thing that we're gonna ask this over here is going to confuse us. And we're gonna say, wait a minute, that can't be right. It sounds kind of interesting, but that can't be right. And that's gonna be something we come right into contact with as we study the book of Galatians. And so with that in mind, look at Galatians chapter five and we'll see it play out. Look at Galatians five, starting in verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Over the past few weeks, we've hit on a few of these. We've talked about love and joy, peace and patience. Today, we're going to talk about two of them, kindness and goodness. And these two words, the reason we decided to kind of do these together as a package deal is because in many ways, these two words have a lot of crossover. Kindness and goodness. In the original language that this letter is written in Greek, this word that's used for kindness and the word that's used for goodness often kind of have interchangeable meanings. And so though the Apostle Paul certainly had different things in mind, he used those words purposely, there's in many ways in which it's kind of difficult to distinguish Well, what's the uniqueness about kindness that's different than what's meant by goodness? But to make the best of what we can, here's a simple way of thinking about the kindness that's being described here. Uh, This word kindness, the Apostle Paul in his writings, this writer, he writes this word, this Greek word, a number of times, and he almost exclusively uses it when he's describing God's kindness towards us. So let's elevate our understanding of the kind of kindness that we're describing here. So this is a word he almost exclusively uses to describe God's kindness, and it's the kind of care that's demonstrated to others. The word goodness, uh, it's uh, the, the, somebody, if anybody's named Agatha, it's from the Greek word, right? So the word goodness, this idea of goodness being described here, describes this quality of uprightness, uh, this place of purity and integrity, uh, even a, a spirit of generosity toward others. There's In the inner you, there's this quality of goodness. That's what's being described here by these words. And so what what Galatians 5 is communicating is that God, the Holy Spirit, produces in followers of Jesus these virtues, that Christians, as they follow Jesus, grow in producing more and more kindness and goodness. And a helpful way of thinking of that is kind of when you have those character moments where your character is revealed, Right? Sometimes crisis, it kind of just exposes your character, shows the real you. You see something in your heart that you're like, whoa, I didn't know that was in there. You lash out because of something happens. Right? It reveals what's in your heart. Kindness and goodness that's being described here. What the Holy Spirit does is he produces in us this growing sense, this increasing sense of care, this increasing sense of extending yourself on behalf of another. That that's our innate response in any moment whether caught off guard or we're planning on doing it. So with these definitions in mind, I wanna do something. Let's zoom out for a moment and let's consider this document that we're reading. So uh, in in the Bible, we have a number of different genres that make up the Bible. There's poetry, uh, there's there's law, there's prophecy, there's biography. Uh, There's a number of different genres. We happen to be reading a letter. And this letter is written by a guy named Paul to a group of churches in a region in the Roman Empire called Galatia. And the Galatians that are receiving this letter are having this situation happen that Paul is addressing. And so Paul doesn't just sit around one day and say, hey, you know what? I think I'll write to the Galatians just because, right? He's writing to them with a specific reason. There's stuff going down in Galatia that Paul needs to address. And so here's what it is. From the letter we can piece together and from, church, from history outside of the Bible, we can piece together the situation that was happening in Galatia. And there was this group of people gaining influence and prominence in this region that was teaching a form of Christianity that was not Christianity at all. And so these false teachers are gaining influence and gaining followers. People in the churches are like, oh, you know what, that sounds right. And they're starting to embrace these things. Uh, these false teachers are commonly called the Judaizers. And here's what they taught. 
that if you want to be made right with God, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be justified before God, here's what you got to do. You got to receive Jesus as the Messiah and submit yourself to the Jewish law and the Torah. Submit yourself to the ceremonial laws, the cleanliness laws, keep the festivals, make sure you obey the dietary laws, submit to the Jewish law. If you do that, then you will be justified before God. That's what this Judaizing party taught. And Paul catches word of this and he's like, "Uh uh-uh. And he responds and he writes a letter. He actually has somebody else, he orates a letter, somebody else writes it for him and he sends this letter off. And when you read the letter, I hope you get the chance this summer as we're studying through Galatians, read the whole letter. You can see all throughout the letter where he's addressing and calling these false teachers out. And he's making clear that what they're teaching is not in line with him. I wanna show you a couple examples. Galatians 1, starting in verse six. If you flip there, Galatians 1, verse six. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. That word is the word anathema. And just in case they didn't hear it the first time, he repeats it. If even an angel shows up and starts proclaiming to you a gospel different than the one that was proclaimed to them originally, the gospel that's testified by the life and ministry in the scriptures of Jesus. If you experience a gospel contrary to that gospel, may they be accursed. Then in Galatians chapter three, he gets more specific. Galatians chapter three, verse 11, he says this. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So here's what these false teachers were communicating. They were saying to Gentiles, non-Jews, who were putting their faith in Jesus and following Jesus, and they were saying, great, you received Jesus the Messiah, fantastic. Okay, here's the laws that help make sure that, you know, this thing that you've got got embarked on, here's what you need to do in order for God to be cool with you. Here's how you can be justified before God. And Paul gets word of this and wants to make it absolutely clear that if we've had this gospel preached to us, If you hear something preached to you that says Jesus plus something else is necessary, that's a sign. It's not the gospel that was preached to you. It was Jesus did everything, right? The message of Galatians is actually the message of the Reformation. It's that uh, we are saved, we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus did 100% of the work. It's not like 90-10 It's not, he says, all right, I'll do 80%. I'll pay for 80% of your sins and you gotta make up for the 20%. No, Jesus did everything. And we receive salvation as a gift. And so Paul's writing to them and saying, don't embrace this lie that you need to add to the work of Christ. His work is complete and it satisfies God's judgment towards sinners. He did everything that needed to be done and he makes that clear. And the way we receive this gift is by faith. And so this idea of the law, the law that is being described here when he says no one will be made right with God by the law. This isn't Paul saying that the law is bad or that rules are bad. In fact, there's a time in the book of Romans where he says, what does that mean? Is the law bad then? No, the law is good. Here's what the law does. 
The law reveals to us the character of God, the standard that God has for us. The law helps us see how much we need a savior by how far short we fall from meeting the standard. The law shows that that's good. But these Judaizers, this party of people, was communicating that in order to be made right with God, the way to find change is you need the law. You need more rules. And here's what we know about laws and rules. And you know this if you're a parent. We know this if you've been hanging around life long enough is that rules can restrain bad behavior. They can't change a heart. They can restrain bad behavior. They can keep certain bad things from happening as much by creating a consequence. But they can't change a person's heart. Now, just as a simple aside for a moment, Paul is writing with some really strong language. He's using words like, let them be accursed. doesn't happen often in the Bible to read those kind of words. It's scary language, but it is a serious thing when people are claiming and masquerading as Christians, but propagating a false message. And there is no shortage of false teaching today. And a wise and discerning Christian, wise and discerning church puts everything to the test of scripture, making sure that this is the gospel that was proclaimed. So right here, Paul, addressing them very, very seriously, makes this clear. No, we are made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus did everything. Let me give you an example of how the law can restrain some bad behavior and even encourage some good behavior, but it can't change a heart. So in 29 days, our middle and high school students will embark on what is going to be the greatest week of their summer. I can just promise it. It's going to be amazing. And we have within our camp experience uh, this rule. It's a law. And the rule is that at the beginning of the week, we give them a bunch of breakfast foods that they keep in their hotel room. And there's enough in there, theoretically, for the entire week. But say it's Thursday and it's hungry 17-year-old boys, right? It's Thursday and they've run out of food. Here's what we say. Listen, you're free to either trade with another room or if you need more cereal, we got you. No worries. If you need more Eggos, you need more milk, we'll take care of it. We want you to be fed. You know, we care about you. However, there is one item that we say at the beginning of the week, this is all you're going to get. This is a limited supply. You get this one box, and when it's done, it's done. We can't resupply this. And that becomes like the most coveted piece of property for our middle and high school guys. And that is a box, a fat box of Jimmy Dean breakfast sandwiches, okay? And so they eat like two of them in the morning for breakfast and one before bed at night. It's like they're vitamins. And so they, they eat just massive amounts. And so Thursday rolls around, and they're like, they wake up, and they're like, panic mode, right? There's no more Jimmy Dean breakfast sandwiches. I got to eat Eggos. What is this? You know? And so they, there's a stipulation in our rule, including that proviso, okay? There's a provision that you can trade with another room. So you can make a trade. So let's say you need something and they've got it and they need something else. You can make a trade. So this puts the girls at camp in an interesting situation, where all of the guys want their Jimmy Dean breakfast sandwiches because the girls eat their sandwiches at a much slower pace. And so Thursday and Friday roll around and they've got an abundance of Jimmy Dean breakfast sandwiches and the guys are like, doing, we'll do anything. And so they're all are offering to trade, trying to cut deals. And if you're an outside observer and you just stumble upon our camp and you see the way our guys are interacting with our, our girls, you might conclude, wow, these are some nice gentlemen that are... <laughs> that are like going out of their, like, I'll carry your water, right? <laughs> I, and then the girls are milking it. They're like, can you hold my paintbrush? And then they just stand there, right? And, and they're all working an angle. Now, this kind of kindness and goodness that they're displaying in this moment 
We see right through it, okay? Of course, clearly. We see right through it. This is not kindness and goodness. Here's what the law does. Here's what a rule can do. Rules can produce kindness and goodness with a selfish agenda. That's what they do. They provide some sort of incentive. And so the problem, though, with kindness and goodness that has an angle to it where you're trying to work or finesse some Jimmy Dean sandwiches, the problem with that is that it's not kindness and goodness at all. That's manipulation. It's me being fake, pretending to be kind when I just want something else in return. It's me saying I'm being kind, but really just trying to make a trade. And that kind of kindness and goodness is what the law produces. It's what rules produce. They're motivating our self-interest, whether it's our self-interest against fear of punishment, whether it's our self-interest against uh, trying to find some sort of reward. And so laws are good at that. That's what they do. But Paul describes and exposes how that is not the kind of kindness and goodness that God desires for us, and it's not what he wants for his people to, to display. The law is powerless to justify us before God. Being good enough doesn't cut it. We can't be good enough because even our good deeds and acts of kindness are often motivated out of selfish purposes, trying to get something in return. And so that then leads us to this tension. If we then say, okay, I can't be made right with God by being good enough. My good works, me going to church and giving to the poor and uh, praying a lot, although those are great and I should, that's not getting me anything with God. I'm completely forgiven, meaning all of my sins in the past and all of my sins in the future are paid for. I'm forgiven. I'm good. I'm going to heaven. My ticket is stamped. The judge banged the gavel. It's over. If I am justified before God, then the tension we get to in light of such freedom is, well, does that mean I get to live however I want? In moments of temptation, the thought comes to mind, well, I'm forgiven. Sure, this thing right here, I know I probably shouldn't do it. I know this doesn't honor, my family doesn't honor Christ, but I'm good, I'm forgiven. There's nothing bad that's gonna happen to me, I'm, I'm good. And so the question that we then bump into when we consider the message of the gospel is, well then, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul brings this up, and I want to read this to you. This is Galatians 5.13. This is him starting to take a turn in his argument in this letter where he's going to address the answer to that question. Galatians 5.13, he says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In other words, he's saying and affirming, yes, you have freedom in Christ. That if you're a Christian, what that means is Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the law. He's perfectly obeyed it in your place. If you are in Christ, that law is not on your back. It's not a burden you have to bear anymore. That's been lifted. You have been freed. But in your freedom, brothers, do not see it as an opportunity for the flesh and its sinful desires. That freedom is not given to you so that you might live however you please, but instead through love, serve one another. And it's in this context it's in this overall argument that he's making in this letter that he int introduces this idea of the fruit of the Spirit, where he, in essence, answers the question, well, what motivation do Christians have to even be nice or kind? 
If the threat of punishment has been removed, if they're good, they're justified, there's nothing they can do. They bring nothing to the table. Jesus did everything. Paul answers that the motivation is when a person is in Christ and they have received God's gracious gift of salvation through Jesus, they start walking by the Spirit. And here's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. And so Jesus, by setting us free from the law, doesn't lower his standards and expectations for his followers' kindness and goodness. He sets it higher. Because now he says, you have my spirit in you that's walking with you, that's at work producing this fruit in you. That you might display the kind of kindness that's only reserved to describe God's kindness. That that kind of kindness might come to fruition in your life. It's in this context that he says this. Look at Galatians 5, 23, uh, through 20, or 24 through 25. He says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is where the fruit of the Spirit come in. This is what God is doing in us. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit, goodness and kindness, is not our way to get to heaven. I think if you ask the average person, you know, what does it take to be accepted by God? What can it take for a person to go to heaven? They might say, well, if you're a good person, if you're kind to people, if you try your best, if you're not terrible. And what the fruit of the Spirit makes clear is that goodness and kindness is not the seed that produces the fruit of heaven, but that heaven came down in the person of Christ and Jesus plants the seed in our hearts and the Spirit nurtures and matures this fruit of goodness and kindness within us. That it's the result. And so Paul is making it clear, no, we're not lowering the standards for the kindness and goodness if you follow Jesus. This is what it means to walk with him. This is how he goes to work in our hearts and in our lives. And the Spirit does this. Look at Galatians 4, 6 through 7. Here's one of the ways that the Holy Spirit works to ensure this. In verse 6 of chapter 4, it says, And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit makes it his job. He is adamant. His purpose is to make it absolutely clear if you're a follower of Jesus, he wants it to make it crystal clear in your heart who your father is. So that he sent his son, his, the spirit of his son into our hearts that we might know that we get to call the heavenly father, Abba, personal name of God. The name that would only be appropriate for my son Hudson to call me. We get to call dad, our father, like that. Jesus sends his spirit into us. See, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, you got Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God eternally existing in three persons, equal in deity, equal in time, always existed, always will, but they have different functions. And so the person of the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit works in us and he is at work through your circumstances, through your scripture study, through your interaction with people, through your prayer, through everything in your life, he is making it a point to bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. This is what the spirit does. And as the spirit does this, he ensures our inheritance. And so for a moment, picture a different camp scenario with me. So suppose with me for a moment that at our camp this year, Jimmy Dean's son was invited. 
And for our purposes, uh, Jimmy Dean's son is not an old man, but actually a middle or high school student. And so Jimmy Dean's son experiences camp, and Thursday rolls around, and he wakes up, you know, gets up out of bed after a, a, you know, a great night, and a uh, great night's sleep. I'm sure they got so much rest. And he wakes up, and he sees there's no more breakfast sandwiches. And all the other rooms are in a panic. I mean, you can hear, like, there's a Richter scale, you know, measurement. Uh, the guys are in a panic. And Jimmy Dean, he grabs his phone and says, all right, let me call my dad. And he calls up his dad, and he says, dad, we need some sandwiches. And his dad sends one of his drivers, because I'd imagine he has drivers. And in this scenario, Jimmy Dean is still alive, okay? So, uh, but he sends his driver over with a, just a bunch more breakfast sandwiches than Jimmy Dean's son could know what to do with. And he gets this delivery, and he has them all in his room, and he just, he just, mm, just eating breakfast sandwiches. And he's so full. Now, what just happened in this moment, in this scenario, is that Jimmy Dean's son is now in a position because of his relationship with his father, he's now in a position where he can show a kind of kindness and goodness that the other guys can't. You see that? He can show a kind of kindness and goodness that the other guys can't because their kindness and goodness is just working an angle. See, he's full. He's got everything he needs and more. And so he doesn't need to try and use them to try and get something he actually wants. He can instead, with a full, satisfied stomach, with lots of energy and calories, he can serve and care for and respect and be kind. The Holy Spirit, he ensures that we know without a shadow of a doubt who our Father is. He makes it clear. He wants you to know you're his child. The inheritance is yours with Christ. He solidifies this and cements it so that we might be full and satisfied realizing we have everything we need and more. Ephesians 1 says that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've already been blessed. We've already been shown favor. I don't need to use somebody to get something I need. I've got more than I need in him. And so with that level of joy and with that deep identity as a child of God, I can show goodness and kindness to people, not because I need something from them, but because of the kindness and goodness that's been shown towards me. That's a rare kind of kindness. That is something that's very foreign to our world that really is more of a trade than it is kindness. God the Spirit does what the law can't. He frees us from our selfish agendas and frees us to be able to be good and kind towards others, to demonstrate the kind of kindness and goodness that Jesus has shown us. So I wanna give you two practical exhortations from this truth, from this calling that, that God is producing in us, these fruit, this fruit of kindness and goodness. I wanna give you two practical things you can do the first one is this, admit where you've lacked kindness and goodness. Admit it. Be honest about it. In fact, uh, today, like spend some time, where have I lacked kindness and goodness? Sometimes this expresses itself very directly, and we just lash out at someone. We're, we're just rude, just angry towards someone, or harsh with them in our tone, in our words. Maybe something happens, there's a crisis, and your response, what's kind of inside you, you realize is, I just lashed out. Take that opportunity to, to admit it. Here's what admitting does. When we admit our failures, what we do is we connect ourselves to the grace of God. When I admit I'm not perfect and that I've failed, I'm reminding myself of my need for grace and that I'm not a Judaizer. I'm not saying that 
I have received Jesus as the Messiah and then I've got to add to the work of Christ for God to be happy with me. No, he is satisfied because of what Jesus has done. He's not saying, all right, you're an illegitimate child now. No, when we confess our sin, we admit it. It connects us to his grace, reminds us that he loves us and cares for us and has forgiven us. And then it displays to the people around us when we admit our failures, this message of the gospel that we're not out here claiming to be better than everybody else. We're not morally superior to everybody else. We've received grace and mercy that we needed just like everybody else needs. Jesus has shown us that. And so when you admit that, so so kids, students, those in the room, college students, high school students, young people in this room, when you are mean, unkind, when you lack goodness towards your mom and dad, like maybe something happened this week and you, you had a blow up with them. You guys, whatever happened, something happened, you feel wrong, they feel wrong. Kids, students, go up to your mom and dad, say, hey, mom, dad, I, I'm sorry. Um, I was out of line. I didn't show you kindness and Jesus has shown me much kindness and I wanna display that kind of kindness towards you even when I feel hurt. And then pick their jaw up off the floor when, <laughs> when you tell them that. And then parents, right, us parents, with our kids, when, when we mess up and we fail to show kindness and goodness, we need to admit it. We're not aiming to try and show our children and teach them and raise them up that mommy and daddy are perfect. We're trying to raise them up that Jesus is perfect, that he has forgiven us of much and he's making us more and more like him every day. And so as we stumble along our way, buddy, sweetie, I'm so sorry that daddy did that. I need to apologize to you. Will you forgive me? I want to try and show you the kind of kindness that Jesus has shown me. Admit it. And admit the times when you're directly unkind or directly lacking goodness. And admit the times when you're just working an angle. Admit the times when you do something kind because what you really want is a trade. (laughs) Trying to get something in return. Let's be honest about that. Pray, pray about that. Say, God, why, why is that in my heart? Help me to realize, I don't need to use that person. I don't need to manipulate that person. I can show kindness to them. Admit it. The second challenge exhortation that I wanna give to you is to stop running to the law for what the Spirit alone can do. Stop running to the law for what the Spirit alone can do. The law is good. Rules are helpful. We need rules. That's great but laws can't change hearts. And so when we fail and we realize, I've got a problem. This anger thing, this is a challenge for me. Or this addiction, this is a challenge for me. Laws and rules may be helpful, but they're not gonna change the condition of your heart. The spirit can do that. God can do that. God can bring about that change of kindness and goodness into your heart. He can But rather than running to rules or the law, instead rely and walk in step with the Spirit. That as you follow Jesus, he brings about this journey of change. If it was up to us, we wish that we could just in an instant just kind of microwave our change. And in 30 seconds later, we've got a nice, warm, hot, delicious new version of us, right? That we're brand new. And we don't get angry in those situations anymore. And we don't react harshly in these moments. That the moments of crisis expose a kind and patient, good-hearted person. But it doesn't work like that. It's this slow process of being transformed from one degree to the next. It's a crock pot that's much more delicious in the end. It's slowly cooked. But it's this journey of walking with the Spirit, step by step, of Him making us more and more like 
Jesus, that we might display this goodness and kindness. And so stop running to the, to the law for what the Spirit alone can do. Set up boundaries. If there are challenges in your life, there's things that you're running, you set up some boundaries, but address the heart. As you follow Jesus and study his word, you get to know him more. Ask his strength to produce these fruit in you. Allow that identity of who you are in Christ as a child of God to sink down deep into who you are. You know, in John chapter 19, uh, we read about some of Jesus' final moments. And it's one of my, uh, it's one of those places in the Bible that you wonder, like, I wonder why that was included. John chapter 19, to set up the scene, it's a moment when uh, there's a crowd of people gathered around Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. And the Romans would crucify people outside of the city gates near a busy road so that a large number of people would pass by and could see all of this take place. And so there's a large crowd of people that has formed and Jesus hanging on a cross. And above him, there's a sign that John describes is written in three languages. And the sign accuses him of, of, of what he said he was, that this man is the king of the Jews. And for this reason, he is being crucified. And it's written in three languages just to ma- maximize the number of people that make sure language isn't a barrier for people to know why he's there. So he's hanging on the cross and he's giving his life. And if you can kind of just envision yourself there for a moment and place yourself there, there he is hanging. And there's a group of soldiers over, maybe over here. And this group of soldiers, they've taken Jesus' garments and they've cut them into four pieces. And the four soldiers each take a piece of Jesus' garments, almost like a trophy of the day of what they just did. And they take the garment and then they also take his tunic and it was seamless and John describes it, he was there. But then Jesus is on the cross and he looks over and he sees a scene that he can't help but comment on. That among the mockers and the crowd of people that are questioning him, some spitting at him, jarring at him, he sees his mom. And he looks over, he sees his mom and his mom is weeping. I want to read this to you. This is John chapter 19, starting in verse 25. John 19, starting in verse 25. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So here's Jesus on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. It's a monumental moment, huge moment. And he sees his mom weeping, he sees her crying. And amidst this scene, it's probably chaotic and noise. The other people who are hanging are probably groaning and fighting for life. And he sees his mom crying and weeping. And if I just think of my own self, in moments of crisis, especially when I'm wrong, something done that's wrong, someone hurts me and I don't deserve it, My attention is solely on myself. I turn inward. We turn selfish. We're like, why does this happen to me? Make it all about us. But here's Jesus hanging on the cross. He's about to take his final breath and die. And he sees his mom. It's a woman who, an angel told her that there was something special about her son. That her son was gonna grow up and do something great. That God was gonna accomplish something through him. And she sees her son, that she changed his diapers and she saw him take his first steps and She fed him and nursed him and saw him learn language and she saw him grow up and she knew that God had a plan for him and there was a season when she was even confused and unsure and 
She was even questioning him. We find out that they were kind of suspicious of these things that were happening around him. But at this point, she had sort of come to understand of what he came to do. And his mom looks at her son dying there in the most torturous way, and she's weeping. And Jesus looks over at his mom in his worst of moment, in his moment of crisis, and he says to her, hey, mom, John, my disciple, my friend, he's gonna take care of you. And John, brother, take care of my mom. And you almost wonder as you read this, you're reading this narrative. I mean, this is Jesus dying for the sins of the world. This is the moment. So what it's all been leading to, he's been saying, my hour has not yet come. And this was the hour he had been telling his disciples for. He's accomplishing something that's changing the world. It almost seems like this aside Why does John pause and tell us about this sweet moment with his mom? There's bigger things happening here. What's going on? And I love how John, the eyewitness, who had the honor of being bestowed by Jesus to care for his mom, I love how John encapsulates and shows us a glimpse into the character of Jesus and the heart of God, that even in crisis, when all of us might think to be absorbed in ourselves, Jesus cares for his mom. And he shows her kindness and goodness. And he fulfills the commandment to honor your father and your mother to his dying breath. And what we conclude from reading a passage like that, and we set it in context, we can conclude nothing but this, that who is good and kind like Jesus? Who who would do that? That before they pass away, their concern is not for themselves, but for their mom. And he cares for her and he displays that kindness and the miracle of the cross. The miracle of what Jesus did for us through his death and resurrection is that he now makes us new. For those who are in Christ, he makes us new. Like Galatians says, we've been crucified with him. And so the kind of kindness that ought only be reserved to describe God, the the word that we would only use to say, this is how kind God is, Jesus has now made available to us through the work of his spirit. This is the kind of kindness and goodness that Jesus intends to display in your life. Moms, dads, kids, families. This is the kind of kindness and goodness that Jesus by his spirit intends to bring about in our faith family, in our church. That our community would know us as a good and kind people who love Jesus and love others. Whether we've been wronged or hurt, whether we've been wrongly accused, no matter what, that the Spirit of God is producing this heart of goodness and kindness. This is what he calls you to. I wanna close by reading Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. When the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, God sends his son into the world to redeem those who are under the law. The law was a burden on our backs that we could not bear. Jesus fulfilled it for us. And he frees us so that we might be able to display the kind of character produced by his spirit, the goodness and kindness of Jesus taking fruit in regular, flawed, broken, ordinary people. That's what our world needs. And that's what God intends to bring about in you. 
And this is Jesus' invitation to you. If today is your moment where you're first realizing and understanding the gospel and hearing the words, it's not up to you, that it's not your efforts, it's not your ability to keep the law, it's not about being good enough, but it's that Jesus did everything. If hearing that just awakens your heart and you're like, yes, I need that. I need to be justified in that way. I need Jesus to do for me what I could never do. Then Jesus' invitation to you is to come to him to receive the gift that he's done for you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Have a quiet moment between you and God. And if right now is the moment where you wanna put your trust in Jesus as your savior for the first time, be made right with God, then right now, Jesus extends his hands to you and he says, will you trust me? So right there where you are, where you're seated, would you just say these words to him? Make this your prayer to God. Say something like, God, I need you. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Thank you that I am made right because of what you did through your death and resurrection, that you perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the law. You did what I couldn't. And so I received that free gift. Thank you for saving me. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gift of salvation. Thank you that the answer to the question and the tension we wrestle with, with with regard to our freedom in Christ is that we walk with your spirit. That if we believe in Christ, if we've been justified by your grace, then what that means is you've set us free and the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things, there is no law. So help us to be people that display this fruit. In our moments of temptation and the thought comes, well, I'm good, I'm forgiven. Help us to realize that we walk with your spirit and you have a greater purpose for us. Enable us and free us. We thank you for your grace. May we walk out of here as free people who get to be kind and good. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.